As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome once again to Book Spectrum. I'm Chris Cordani, your host. Some of the Democrats in the 2020 presidential primary vying to run against Donald Trump have brought forth some rather, shall we say, interesting economic plans to the debate stage. I'm not trying to be adversarial right now or anything like that. We would like to have an open discussion. We can argue over whether they're fantasy or feasible, but this is not what our guest on this edition of Book Spectrum is here to discuss. His book is titled Capitalism for Democrats, Why the Country Needs It Now. It's an economic handbook we probably all wish they would read, but it's something that could put more people in tune with those who are in the center of the Nolan Square, according to the author, economist Martin Lowy. Welcome to Book Spectrum, Martin. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be here. Well, it's very nice to have you here, but first, please tell our listeners a bit about you and your background in economics. I don't have a degree in economics. My, de my degrees are uh, in Uh, history and and law, but I like to say I I, I learned economics at the dinner table um, back in the 1970s and early 80s. Uh, I had a client who had been uh, the dean of a, a business school at Long Island University and a professor at Columbia uh, in economics, and he had a roundtable dinner once a month with uh, some of the leading economists in the New York area. And he used to invite me as a regular member of his roundtable. And so once a month, I sat there and listened to the best economists in New York, and I had a right to ask questions as well as discuss. <laughs> and after three years of that, I had a pretty good education. Martin, let's talk about this because you studied history and African politics, then law, practiced that for many years, and were a senior bank officer and entrepreneur. How have the diverse areas of study and occupation shaped your view on how the U.S. economy should work? Oh, I guess uh, gradually uh, in, 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 in many ways. Um, in college, I was uh, in a, a extremely liberal, thought maybe for a while that I was uh, a socialist. <laughs> um, uh, went to law school to study international law and found that uh, there really wasn't much law in international law uh, and uh, ended up uh, going to work for a Wall Street firm and uh, practicing corporate law, uh, which I liked. Um, but after 20 years, I found that I had And, and partnerships in two big firms, um, I found that I had done everything that I really wanted to do in the law and 
So on my 20th anniversary of the practice, going into practice, uh, I decided to do something else. And that something else was to become vice chairman of a bank, uh, which I did for three years. And then at the end of three years, um, well, let's say my, my chairman and I had a parting of the ways. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. There we go. A parting of the ways. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a parting of the ways, and uh, I took a little vacation, and I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning, woke my wife, and said, I'm going out on the beach. We were, it was a beach vacation. And I just didn't want her to wake up and find find me not there, right? Well, that makes sense. Uh, so, so, so I went out, and I walked the beach from 2 to 6, watched the sunrise, came back and announced to my wife, I'm going to write a book. There are SNLs failing all over the United States, and I'm going to write a book about it. And so I wrote my first book called High Rollers, uh, Inside the Savings and Loan Debacle, uh, which was cited by the Supreme Court of the United States, and uh, it continues to be, I hope, the leading book on its subject. And I will be writing, uh, that was 30 years ago, and I will be writing uh, uh, a new version that'll be real history. But anyway, um, so I wrote High Rollers uh, and then looked around and said, I better go earn a living. <laughs> and what I really wanted to do was I wanted to be CEO of a substantial bank, but there was no substantial bank that wanted me as CEO. Now, I have the same I, problem, by banks. the way. That, that, that's my issue, too. That's why I went into this. <laughs> Uh, there were small banks that wanted me as CEO, but that really didn't interest me. So I tentatively went back to the practice of law, and I had left for the right reasons. Ended up having a crazy idea to do sports simulation, and with real balls and real pucks and all that, and uh, started doing started that adventure. In 1992. Yeah, a while after that. You embarked on an interesting entrepreneurial career. We want to talk about that in a little bit. It'll sort of contribute to why you have the book and why you wrote the several other books you've uh, you've put out. The title of this one, though, Capitalism for Democrats, might sound a bit snarky, but it really isn't when one opens up the book and reads it. The tone is rational. Those looking for partisan pot shots might be a little disappointed at first, but perhaps wiser to our system and its merits when read further. Why'd you choose the title Capitalism for Democrats? Because it is kind of a sensational title. Yeah, I chose it because in this year... We have the, uh, the, the, the Democratic primaries coming up, and we have uh, issues that we haven't had to deal with for a very long time in terms of the diversity of the kinds of candidates that we have. Some, some at least one project uh, who says he's a socialist, and others who say that they're centrists, and, and, and others in between. And so I thought uh, this really ought to be directed to Democrats. Now, I should say, Chris, that the feedback that I've got, the reviews that I've got, have said this really is not just for Democrats. Uh, it's for all Americans. And so I am working on another volume, a companion volume, that will be uh, Capitalism for America and do away with the snarky title. <laughs> 
having said that, though, it is important that the title is Capitalism for Democrats because the perception now is, and look, if you listen to MSNBC or even watch part of CNN and definitely hear what's going on with the Democratic debate, you can think that a, a very far left socialist wing of the party is starting to take it over and socialism has be socialism has become more popular, if you will. I think that's the proper word for it among younger people for one reason or another. Yes. And I think they're not sure what socialism means. Exactly. We don't educate our students. We don't educate young people on what it really means and, and the failed socialist governments of the years that maybe uh, we heard about in our younger years. I think that's true, although I don't I don't know exactly what gets taught in high schools these days or in colleges. Uh, I'm, I'm a long way away from that. Um, but I do have the sense that the academy has been seized uh, largely by the left. I, I don't think that that's a really good thing. I think that, you know, not not to say things were better in my day, but we had a diversity of professors uh, when I was in college. We had some who were socialists and some who were uh, uh, very much right-wing. Uh, I, I, I have always embraced that kind of diversity. These are long past the days of Eugene V. Debs running for president four times and, and, and being a, having a small following because socialism was more of an untried form of government. We see the failures of that particular form and we also see that the richest countries in the world, most of them, because we're not talking currency manipulation and other things, happen to be capitalist societies, or at least some form of capitalism, whether it be full free market or something in the middle like us, or maybe a little, or maybe uh, developing nations working on that as well. I mean, the pattern's there. Yes. And, and uh, you know, when, when you ask the young people who think they're socialists, you, say, you ask them, well, what, what socialist country uh, do you want to emulate? And... What you hear mostly is Sweden. Right. And that's and not Sweden really a socialist nation. No, it is not. And I do cover that in the book, uh, that it's not really a socialist nation. It happens to have some unique uh, ways of governing itself, um, but they're not socialist. And uh, it also is, in a sense, not a good example for America because it's a the population of Sweden is about the population of metropolitan New York exactly are not and uh, the population is quite homogeneous other than some recent uh, immigrants uh, it, it's a homogeneous population that goes back uh, a long way and so they tend to have less disagreement on uh, their goals uh, than than we do in the US Another thing I want to throw out there, and, and I want to delve into your book a little bit, but for background, people look at a book or commentator that says what they're thinking. They like to read something that says, hey, I want to validate my own thoughts. It's like my party good, your party bad. But your book is for people who are sick of, and this is a growing faction, people who are tired of hearing left-right tribalism politics. And I am tired of it, too. 
Well, we all are. I really am. But then the economic system gets thrown in the middle. We hear about the politics. People like to say, there ought to be a law. This has to be done. Somebody's got to do something about this when they don't like something. But when it comes to our economic system, that kind of gets thrown in. So it's almost like uh, purveyors of free market capitalism. I mean, full, untouched free market laissez-faire capitalism on one end are saying, well, we'll trade this for this if you agree with us here. And people on the far left looking for socialism saying, well, we'll trade socialist policies for your more sensitive social policies. Policies and, and just back us so we'll back you. And all of a sudden we become a tribal nation and nobody understands, hey, wait a minute here. Our system actually works. We can make it work a little better, but nobody's talking about that. Um, that's right. I think that if we look at uh, the, the pattern of voters on a national basis uh, over the last 20 years or so, everybody wants change. It's a look nice word. Who, you it's know, a nice the, word. The, 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 the winners have bashed the status quo and asked for change, regardless of whether it was change for the left or the change for the right. And um, in the event, Barack Obama turned out to be a centrist. I mean, he was, uh, I I do understand that many Republicans called him a socialist, but uh, in fact, he was quite a centrist. And uh, uh, I might have hoped that he could be someone who brought the country together uh, in the event that didn't work, why that didn't work. Right. That's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about how the economy works and why your book is uh, is actually something that maybe people on both sides should really read. Again, My Side Good, Your Side Bad is really wearing thin on most of the public. This is what happened in 2018's election and 2016's election. We can talk about that all we want. But the fact is, you also say, hey, wait a minute here. While we shouldn't have socialism, our, our particular brand of capitalism is good for a lot of reasons, but there are some things we can work out. You dedicate a lot of time to your thoughts on good capitalism versus bad capitalism in the book. Let's hit there. Sure. We need to understand capitalism works only when we also have a decent safety net. And in the U.S., we have a safety net that isn't quite adequate. Now, when we design safety net policies... We do have to be aware that if we go too extreme, we can uh, rob people of incentives to work and incentives to uh, make the economy work. And so that, uh, that, uh, that's an issue. And when we enact regulations, we have to understand that sometimes we can enact regulations that actually uh, do more harm than good. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have regulations. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have more safety net. Um, One of the things that we have not been good at in our safety net is in helping out people who have lost their jobs due to either foreign competition or technology. Uh, And and one one can't know in many cases, you know, why one's job disappeared. Uh, It could be foreign competition. It could be technology. It could be a combination of factors. Um, But we need to help those people more than we have been. That's one of the things that I think is important. Uh, we, do, we have shown uh, that universal health care is something that people want and that can work. question is, how should you do it? There are all kinds of ideas. My perspective is, let's do it one way or another uh, because it's needed, uh, whether it should be a Medicare kind of program or a private program. Uh, I'm really not sure, uh, but 
we we can all discuss it rationally if we agree that we need a program that works for everybody. Martin Lowy is our guest on this edition of Book Spectrum, his book, Capitalism for Democrats. Yes, the title sounds funny and cute, and <laughs> but the fact is it's a pro-American book. I want to talk about the safety net you discussed because a truly capitalist system does unfortunately have to have unemployment, which we don't want, but 100% employment is not very easy to do, and that also results in underemployment. A good capitalist system needs to find a way to put that safety net in for people who have lost their jobs, but also try to find a way to retrain people who want to try something different, who aren't working at the time, and take care of some of the families, many of which have contributed to the economy previously before losing their work. Yes, and one of the issues is how do you take care of them? And one of the things that I think works well is if, is, let me back up and say, I'm a believer that people feel best when they have a job. They'd like to contribute. I don't think most people want to you know, sit on the sidelines and collect money for nothing. Uh, they really do want a job, and I believe that people feel better uh, when, they do, when, when they're working. Um, so you want people to go back to work. There's an impediment often to going back to work because the jobs that they're offered are lower-paying jobs than the jobs that they had. Exactly. That's underemployment. Well, we have a program where we do make up some of that uh, difference between what they were making and what they are making now. But that program is very limited, and it requires a showing that it was due to foreign competition. Um, We should expand that program and just say, for whatever reason, you lost your job. You take a job, we want you to take another job. If you take a job that has lower pay, we're going to make up for a certain period of time a certain percentage of that difference. That is, the government is going to make it up. So that encourages you to take a, uh, take a job. You're no longer on the dole, and you're able to have self-respect, take care of your family, whether you're a man or a woman, single or married, doesn't matter. Uh, You're able to have self-respect and take care of your family and yourself. The expense is a relatively small expense compared to the good that we can do with it. Well, it's not just good. It also brings people back to work. There is an incentive in our system also not to work. That's another issue altogether. But the book here, your book, Capitalism for Democrats, brings across something that I believe should be said by many people who've turned closed-minded over the years. Let's sit down and have a conversation. You, Martin, represent in the book, Capitalism for Democrats, a moral argument for capitalism. And we do hear, capitalism is immoral. You hear a lot of kids on college campuses screaming that. It's immoral. Uh, uh, Capitalism can can leave. We want, and they have the, the, the communist symbols are on the signs. You have the International Socialist Organization in there helping kids promote. We, we talked about this a little bit earlier. Before I go off on that tangent, let's talk about your moral argument for capitalism. The reason why capitalism is moral is because it really is based on decisions being made by consumers and not by elites. That is, when the world, the business world, decides what is it going to produce? It's going to produce what people will buy, and it will produce it 
only if it's at a price that people will buy. There are millions of customers making billions of decisions who are determining what gets built, what gets sold, and at what price. Now, it also has to be practical from the point of view of making it, but uh, it is the consumers and not an elite that's chosen somehow that makes those decisions. And I think that that is the moral basis of capitalism. And when we lose sight of that, and when we let elites make the decisions instead of the marketplace, then I think we get away from that uh, moral basis of capitalism. And uh, that, to me, is problematic. It's true, and it sounds like a lot of young people, and I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them say, wait a minute, I wouldn't mind somebody telling me what to do or buy or where to work because, and we have to add this in, this economy has been a little rough on uh, on them coming out of college. They were tricked into expensive college degrees that might not be worth anything after they get out. They don't have the same real money environment that maybe somebody 40, 50, or even 30 years ago may have had when it came to buying a house or buying a car. Let's face that as a fact. Sometimes turning away from capitalism is a sign of desperation. There are factions that are taking advantage of it, but how can we help educate young people? And believe me, reading your book, Capitalism for Democrats, will be a big help. But how can we, everyday people, just say, hey, this is a good system. We'll show you why. Yes, there are no magic words. A magic wand. And, yeah, we, we would like one of those, wouldn't we? But uh, there are no magic words when we talk with, uh, with, with younger people who have questions. Because their experience, as, as you said, uh, particularly those who were sort of coming of age um, when, uh, when the Great Recession hit in 2008, uh, that was a terrible jolt to them in part because they were told that that could not happen. They, were growing, they, they grew up believing that that kind of thing couldn't happen. The Great Depression was a long time ago. It wasn't going to happen again. Well, it almost happened. And so their faith in the system was really shaken. And, you know, one has to not only understand that, but sympathize with it. And one of the things I don't talk about much in this book, but I have talked about in, in, in other books, is that in the 1990s, there were top economists who were saying that we don't have to worry about boom and bust because the Fed can always clean up and, and prevent a bust from getting too far. Yes, in theory, yeah, in theory they can do that, but again, it's a paper tiger. We saw three quantitative easings from 2009 onward. It temporarily triggered a, a sort of a jumpstart to the economy each time. But the fact is, when the easing is over, and you saw some of that effect in the December of 2018, as a matter of fact, it could do some damage to the markets overall. And it's not a real boost to any economy. It's sort of a Potemkin village, if you will. You know, Chris, I'm not really a macro. I'm not a macroeconomist. But I think we know a lot less about uh, how to deal with those issues uh, than, than we think. Uh, and when I say we, I mean the world at large. As I think I say in the book, the Fed does not admit to its shortcomings. The Congress thinks the Fed is all has to be wizards. Uh, but the fact is that the Fed are not wizards. Uh, they're just human beings who have usually 
uh, economics degrees, but the current chairman doesn't. And uh, they are trying to figure out what's going on just as much as the rest of us. So I don't think that they have any magic. And did quantitative easing work? Did it not work? Uh, even in hindsight now? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I read a lot of this stuff, but I really don't know whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing. I tend to think that probably it was as much right as wrong, but I, I, I cannot tell. The book Capitalism for Democrats is a very pro-America book. It's not a uh, your party good, my party bad, like we just talked about before. It's not my system great, your system is demonic. But it is saying our system works pretty well, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But a lot of that is also our own due diligence. So let's talk consumer awareness, which is something you bring up in the book. And I believe we should talk about that, especially in the context of this conversation. And for the listeners, you campaigned for the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau in the past. Do you think consumers are well-informed today? And if not, what can we do to remedy that? Well, I think that consumers are never going to be fully informed because they don't have the time. It's largely their responsibility to, take, to utilize the tools that are available. And what government and regulation have to do is to make the tools available. And uh, that means things like the Consumer Finance Bureau, um, Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, and the FTC and other agencies. There also is a responsibility on the part of um, sellers to try to make their products useful for consumers. What I see is that the most successful companies are the ones who do that and who don't deceive the consumers. You're right, Martin, because word spreads a lot more quickly these days. Yes, it does. And that's one of the wonderful things about the Internet. If a company is doing bad things, uh, people find, about, find out about it pretty quickly. And companies that have respect in the marketplace, like Apple, Apple can, make, can charge more for its phones because people like them. Well, I want to interject here, though, Martin, because you remember when they started slowing down some of the older phones' Internet reception to force them to buy the newer phones, that did come out. And they had to get out in front of that real quick. So that's important, too. The con consumer wise Well, that's right. That's right. And, and consumers will that's go right. to the other guy if they feel their company isn't doing well. So you got to get out in front. This capitalist system technically forces companies to do the best they can for their consumers because they'll just say, hey, wait a minute here. We're not loyal to you if you're not loyal to us. We're going to the other guy. That's what it's meant to do. But, you know, one of the things that we don't do well is to teach young people about how to be good consumers. It depends upon it depends upon one's parents. If your parents are good consumers, chances are you will be. And if your parents are not good consumers, chances are you won't be either. But our schools don't do a good job of teaching people how important it is to be a good consumer, not only for themselves, but for the system. And that's very important too, Martin. When I was growing up in the 1970s, we used to have, along with the cartoons, little consumer tips, uh, PSAs that kids could watch and learn from. We did have some time taken out by our elementary school teachers to say, hey, learn how to spend your money wisely. You may only get a few dollars, or if you wind up getting a paper route later on, understand how this works. That should be taught more in the schools today as well. Certainly, schools ought to teach about being a consumer. And I don't think that... Uh 
I don't think that's thought about much in educational circles uh, because they're so preoccupied now with with the testing, with the testing, which is, you know, basic reading and, and math, that other subjects and other thoughts tend to get pushed aside. Keep in mind, financial literacy is very important these days, and that's not taught, that really hasn't been taught over the years. I'm not sure if that's by design or not, but it's something that districts should be looking into. It is not by design. Um, it is, however, uh, I think a product of the type of people uh, who go into teaching. Uh, they tend not to be interested in uh, finance very much. Uh, no, no, I don't mean that critically of them. That's just who they are. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I recall vividly that when I did, when I came out with my first book, High Rollers, I made what turned out to have been a tactical mistake, and that is that I discussed the most important things uh, about what had happened to the SNLs right up front, which is accounting. <laughs> and I, and I explained true. what had happened because of the bad accounting right up front. Well, what I discovered was teachers were turned off by that. They didn't want to read the book. Interesting, but it's something we should be looking at anyway. Accounting is not an interesting subject to many people, including, it appears, teachers. That's where I want to ask this question. What do you want the readers to get most from this book, Capitalism for Democrats? And I mean all sides, not just the Democrats in the title. I want people to come away with the feeling that capitalism works. We should keep it. We need to improve it, but we should uh, improve it by having uh, by under by understanding that uh, all kinds of people have interesting and possibly useful ideas, and that we should learn to talk to each other to sort out which of those ideas should be used in trying to improve it. We should all sit at the table, have a discussion, and stop shutting the other side out, because there are some good ideas all around the Nolan Square. Let's talk about perspectives before we go now. I wanted to add this in, and this is the perfect place for it. In 1964, you got to learn some interesting perspectives from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You got to spend some time with him alone. Yes. I had one hour alone with Dr. King, uh, and it was a fabulous hour. What did I learn? I didn't learn anything concrete. Mostly he was asking questions, not giving answers. But I learned that, first of all, a great man can be inquisitive and uh, really not want to talk about himself, wanted to learn more about, in this case, Yale University, which is where we were. And second, uh, a person can be quiet and yet have tremendous charisma. And that's what he had. Uh, he, he, he was soft-spoken and polite, but there was just, it just radiated from him, uh, this, 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 this charisma. And uh, one can't replicate it, but one can, by respecting it, hopefully carry oneself better through life uh, than not having had that experience. Martin Lowy, how can our listeners learn more about you and Capitalism for Democrats? Go to capitalismfordemocrats.com, and it's all there. I'd like for you to go and see it. Uh, and if you want to buy the book, you can do it through the link there, or you can go to Amazon and put in Capitalism for Democrats, and it will come up. Thank you for coming on with us, Martin. 
Thank you. Once again, the book is Capitalism for Democrats, Why the Country Needs It Now by Martin Lowy. You can also find out more and links to Martin's site and book on our website, bookspectrum.com. I'm Chris Cordeni. Thank, Thank you for you, listening Chris. to Book Spectrum. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.